Okay, Minister Miller and Mark Podlasley, so good to see both of you and so good to be in a room where I can actually see everybody compared to the last time we were together, which was the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. And I think there was maybe 1,300, 1,500 people in the room. And so this is a really nice chance to have a conversation. So I'm looking forward to this. I know, Minister Miller, you wanted to make some opening remarks. And so maybe you could do that first, and then we'll get into some questions. Yeah, absolutely. I'd sat okay. down, so I didn't know what I was going to My do. mistake. <laughs> Sorry. I've already messed it up, but it's only the first in a long line of things I'm going to mess up. Bonjour tout le monde. Kwe ulukut tanse. I know Claudette's not here, but I wanted to acknowledge her and particularly her advocacy, not only in getting us off in a good way, but just being a, uh, an informal mentor and being so supportive uh, to me and, and, and to people around me. And she really doesn't have to, but she does it out of a, out of a, out of a profound belief that um, we can move forward better together. And um, I told her last night uh, that she wasn't my favorite elder uh, because the elder that told me to say that was a close friend of hers, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> And so he giggled when I, when I told him I told her, but uh, she is my favorite, so there you go. Um, I want to acknowledge that we're here today, gathered on the traditional territory of the Algonquin people. Um, I want to thank the organizers in Canada 2020 for doing an amazing job and making this important issue such a key aspect and front and center of, of what we need to do to move forward. Um, there's representatives of First Nations, Inuit and Métis community business leaders today, the work that you've been doing and in informing um, people like me, uh, non-Indigenous folks is key in, in, in how we see ourselves as a country. And um, the mechanisms that we're sort of spitballing, talking about, saying are crucial here today are, are key to really something that um, is front and center of my department. In fact, every minister's department. Um, we have sort of a flip way of talking about the economic aspects of reconciliation and saying it's always the, the aspect we think about last. And it's sort of, I think it lies fundamentally in the framing of the issue. Um, you know, when we talk about capital supports, when we talk about the capital gap, we often tend to sanitize the discussion. I see, I'm looking at Tabitha, so I'm, I know this is very familiar to you, but nothing is, there's nothing, there's nothing sane about it and there's nothing that is sanitary about it. The, that has never become more clear in, um, the last two years that we've been gone through as, as the government stepped in the place of private industry to do things that are unprecedented, deploying billions and billions of dollars, and unwittingly in the process, um, potentially leaving Indigenous communities behind, um, making them make that difficult choice between uh, their health and their economic viability, and to understand and look at the epidemic through the lens of what that has done and the health impact on some of the socioeconomic gaps that myself principally and Minister Patty Haidu were tasked in closing is key to informing our path forward. Um, key to that has been the issues that we had to tackle very early on, uh, whether airlines were shutting down and needed support, whether there were um, investments that we were putting out in record speed, but that were leaving band-owned businesses behind, own source revenues behind, um, and having to patch that in real time was very informative not only is to the right thing to do, uh, but also an expression of where the mistakes were in the first place and why that, is, that, why that was the case that there was a potential to leave Indigenous communities behind. Um, so some of the instruments that we deployed during COVID were ones that were groundbreaking, uh, especially targeted towards Indigenous communities. 
uh, medium business, small businesses. When you talk about small indigenous businesses, I'm sure a lot of you have said that, but it's often solely owned businesses, often, uh, often, often owned by women. So it's something that as a government, we said we're gonna fix. So it couldn't be that the first thing we didn't do right was particularly those aspects. So, you know, being a minister in two years of a, of a global pandemic has been informative to a number of us, uh, particularly those who became ministers so shortly before the pandemic, perhaps five months. Um, but it has informed us as to the main topic of what we're talking about here today, which is economic reconciliation. And as I mentioned about the framing of the issue, um, clearly in some of the issues that we talk about, the impacts of what happens if you're not included or what are, what are the issues when you are not part of the conversation are often framed in the effects and impacts that it has. And they're, informed, they're very, very important to study because when we talk about the work that this government needs to do, we often fail to talk about the language of rights. And within that conversation, we can't exclude a key aspect that we've been doing for so long and is foundational upon how this country was created was to sanitize and remove the discussion fundamental to this country of land and acknowledge the fact that the denial, the dispossession of land has caused the socioeconomic gaps that we talk about today. And when we talk about socioeconomic, the economic part is the key to what this government has to do in order to move forward. And all of society has to do to move forward in making sure that a very basic principle of human dignity is observed, which is that everyone gets the fair shot in life. Um, and as in many issues that are indigenous, um, the process is as equally, the outcome's important, the process is very, very important. So the, the principle of nothing with us without us is key to that, and the engagement is key to that. And some of the, we've been slow as a government, we are accelerating, but the process often demands us to take a pause and say, who's at the table? Who's discussing this with us? Who's telling us what to do? And the reality is, and it's again another conclusion of what we've seen in the pandemic, is that when you trust, and we trust each other, and we trust those that are best capable of taking care of themselves, the outcomes are measurably better. So too, um, I meant these are health outcomes. When we talk about economic outcomes, they are better. Um, when we listen, when we consult, when we get together, it's not only a constitutional principle, it is a very basic aspect of human relations. I've already gone far from beyond what my speech was supposed to tell me to say, so uh, I care about this stuff. So, <laughs> so I skipped through all the stuff that we're doing, that I'm supposed to tell you that we're doing great as a government. Um, and I can get into that so I can feel better about myself after this conversation, because that's the objective, obviously. Um, you know, the, the I'd mentioned in, in, in my, um, my very, basic first sentence of in my opening remarks the 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 issue about talking about what it actually means uh, when we talk about economic reconciliation and how some of the incredible measures that we need to deploy in order to support and fill that capital gap that you've told us time and time again needs to be filled um, that we've abstracted that conversation most notably from the issue and the history of our country in and around land but also recognizing that pursuant to the need to make sure that everyone gets a fair shot in life, that we're actually aggressively closing socioeconomic gaps, whether they're in healthcare, infrastructure, um, resources, water, um, and making sure we're doing that in the way where the process counts, the engagement counts, 
Um, because we can talk all day long, and these are not separate conversations, but we can talk all day long about capital gaps, access to equity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if the gaps aren't closed, the basic needs and education aren't fulfilled, we're leaving a generation behind and a growing generation behind. So when I look, um, and it isn't, I don't believe it's self-serving to think about it this way, but uh, some of the legal settlement agreements over child and family services where the federal government is ending its discrimination and compensating those who suffered harm for 30 years, it touches and concerns the issues in and around economic <coughs> reconciliation, whether it's the $2 billion that is contemplated in those settlements in housing, um, whether it's making sure that people are properly ta taken care of in the unfortunate situation where they are removed from their, their family, their language and culture. And more importantly, they're actually ensuring that we're making the proper investments as a federal government in partnership with Indigenous peoples to make sure that people can stay within their communities surrounded by their loved ones, which is a basic issue of human dignity. Um, Again, what comes to mind, obviously, is our nation-to-nation -nation relationship. And when you talk about what the fundamentals of a nation are, we often talk about land, culture, identity, um, control custody over your closest. When you remove all these things, we all know what happens. Um, so those socioeconomics are an insidious driver of the current status quo, which is we all know is unacceptable. But we've made a number of very, very significant budgetary investments touching concern these issues, whether it's the $6 billion in housing in the last budget, an equal amount in infrastructure um, in, in the previous budget, all that all need to be sequenced and deployed in the right way to make sure that we are closing a socioeconomic gap by, uh, by 2030, which is a very aggressive date um, in any sort of building cycle. But it is something that goes to not only what we should be doing as a government, but a basic need that needs to be done in this country and we haven't actually done before. Um, when we talk about uh, innovative economic instruments to close the capital gap, when we talk about expanding the infrastructure bank to include mechanisms where you're investing in communities, whether it's for a railway or um, whether it's for um, investments in the far north, um, you're talking about the language of rights and not just simply uh, the language of, um, of economics and sort of the classical sense that I would study it where I studied it. Um, so that is, those are, those are my, my observations on, on those points. Um, I think I'm, I'm eager to hear the product of this conversation because um, the role of the federal government, it's, uh, it isn't a limited one, it's not the only one, but it's certainly one where we have these conversations around the cabinet, the cabinet table. And again, with the stark realization of our, our time, our time on earth is limited, our time in cabinet is even more limited, um, <laughs> but it, it, we do need to move quickly and certainly People have told us they want to see us moving fact faster, quicker, in a more determined way, and it's something that we are um, we're resolved to do. But um, the how, the why, is uh, is really up to people in this room to keep guiding us. So I want to thank you for that, and really do look forward to this conversation. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much for your for your remarks. I'm just thinking that you might have answered all my questions. <laughs> have to uh, have to have to roll with this. So, listen, you speak Mohawk, <laughs> and uh, I want to say good choice. <laughs> As a Mohawk and Ojibwe woman, I know I might be a bit outnumbered here today, but uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I want to say I'm learning. You're uh, learning. Yeah. Okay, well, you know a lot more than I do. So, Nyawen, I can say that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Nyawagoa, thank you very much. <laughs> which means no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that one I couldn't pronounce. I did look up that one as well. 
Um, but listen, I know we're here to talk about the Indigenous-led economy, and, and it is something that we're all striving for. It's something that, uh, that we're all looking for, looking toward our future and trying to understand how, that, how that's going to play out. And I know it means a lot of different things to different people. If I sort of look at um, my fiancé, who's here with me today, um, he's an electrical contractor, and you know when we're when we're having these discussions, it's about it's about partnerships. It's about seeing the all the procurement activity that's happening and trying to understand how are these strategic partnerships going to come together? How are we going to create careers, meaningful careers, and really you know move the needle as far as the skilled trades uh, force works? And then you know, but if I think of my clients. They're looking to equity, right? They'll they'll be seeing like, did I have, am I creating own source revenues for my community over the long term? Um, and then something you did mention in your speech, which I'm also finding very <coughs> interesting right now too, is you know just thinking about the community and making sure no one's left behind, right? Nothing with us without us. Uh, it's such a profound statement, right? And uh, so I do want to ask you, I know you, you did make some opening remarks about economic reconciliation, but if I could ask, like, where, where, where's your focus right now? It's obviously in, in uh, a lot of places, but maybe you can speak to that a bit. You know, it's, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of everywhere. And <laughs> I, I guess somebody said the question, what do you, what keeps you up at night? And I was like, I have a whole list of shit that keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I try not to go into it. But, um, and again, it's, this is like it, it, what it isn't about. It, it, it is is about me, and and the key thing is, um, we have to be walking and chewing gum and doing a hell of a lot of other things at the same time. Um, you talked about procurement in, in in uh, in your in the opening to your question, which is um, a topic that I was speaking to some leadership yesterday, and how you get in the different departments to get that up to the five percent procurement level, which, you know, it unwittingly being spun as a ceiling, but it's very much the floor of where we need to be, and it can be a game changer in a lot of communities, making sure that indigenous uh, indigenous business is getting access to, and we're talking, um, we're, we're putting our money where our mouths are and making sure that indigenous uh, businesses are getting access where some of those barriers can be systemic, whether you're talking about the procurement, uh, the Minister of Procurement in particular, which is a big chunk of it, um, or the Ministry of Defense, uh, there are all sorts of barriers that present themselves to indigenous communities and businesses that um, we have to tackle. And so that that is a, a massive challenge, um, plugging those capital gaps that I, I, I alluded to earlier that just reared their head during the pandemic um, is, is something that is of immense concern to us that the Aboriginal capital corporations have played an, an exceedingly important job and role in, uh, in identifying and, and, and distributing loans during the crisis. Uh, and it's something that we want to continue because the results are there. And I think part of the challenge of government is um, is being able to de demonstrate to your peers that the results are uh, are bearing fruit. It's a painstaking challenge of, that involves economists and lots of people with degrees, but it is something that is important when we go and justify that for for, for successive budgetary cycles. But I think what we've seen um, when we follow those principles of not always trying to control and tell people what to do and deploying into community and trusting more often than not, um, things work and work better. At the same time, avoid, avoiding the insidious uh, commentary that you know you got a control account, and that, which is code word for a lot of people that don't want to see indigenous report. Report, <laughs> right, 
report and <laughs> below grant applications. Well, you know, <laughs> and, and it, you know, right in the middle of the first wave as it was breaking out, as we were deploying sums into communities, um, many communities were on their reporting cycle and in their election cycle. So asking them to hold elections and report at the same time where there's potentially wave one, wave two hitting through is something that we had to just cut through and say we can't do that and expect people to do that. So it's about trust, and um, I think the, the trust sort of benefited, bene benefited and yielded better relationships. No, that's great. And I mean, I, I, I'm thinking back to, you know, you made some interesting points on, you know, the last two years in COVID and everybody just doing what, what, they, what they could. I do remember looking back, it started to look to me like it was going to be a period where of inward reflection, right? Where First Nation communities started to realize, you know, we really, if we're going to get something done, like we can't just pick up the phone, we've got to figure it out. And I think we saw communities really move forward and do some interesting things, right? Start to draft their own laws around COVID, start to sort of take the bull by the horns and, and, and take some of those self-determination steps. So, um, you know, I think, I think those, are good, those are the good sides of, of the piece too. Um, so maybe going over to you, Mark, like- Mark, what? Mark, Mark, Mark. <laughs> Mark. Mark Podlasley. Okay. <laughs> Over to you, Mark, uh, on economic reconciliation. What, what, what's getting you these days on this topic? Well, what's exciting is seeing the shift now in the private sector, governments there. You're starting to see this shift towards exactly what Margaret talked about today, this respect, this engagement, all levels of it. It's not just a social question, or excuse me, it's not just an economic question, it's a social question, it's a community development question. It's, it's all of these things to do exactly as you say, take the bull by the horns and make a better life for ourselves and the next generation. You're starting to see that become very much part of the zeitgeist of industry now too, especially with all the pressures that climate change is bringing forward where people understand that Canada has a massive role to play, but what's it gonna take to get there? And in, in no small part, it's access to capital, which is the Infrastructure Bank, Government of Canada, but also private sector. You're starting to see innovation from communities. Thomas was talking about that too. That's economic reconciliation. It's, it's about all involvement as equals in the economy of this country, which is based on large part by our resources, our lands, our power. That's what economic reconciliation is. Okay, well, I know we've had some good examples talked about today, and we'll, we'll get into a bit more of those discussions, just too. Add what, what yeah, Mark said, please. It's a really important aspect of this in the role of private industry in, in, in um, what is an evolving area of law with some uncertainty, and God knows that Canadian government's got it, gotten it wrong, but industry is taking a keener role in engagement and realizing that you can't just do things as a desktop operation. But I think what's, what is now emerging knowing that sometimes you got to take no for an answer, is that the, that process does matter, but the process actually yields better outcomes for resource developments. And understanding this in a, in a, in, from the perspective of rights actually guides communities um, and, and makes, makes communities more active, but also makes private business understand that they need to engage if they're going to get the project done that they want to do. Uh, and the outcome is actually better. Uh, on the whole, and this isn't something that's limited to Canada. Um, there's a number of countries that aren't your usual suspects that are coming up and looking at Canada and saying, well, where are they doing things right? Where are they doing things wrong? And knowing that with the people that they engage with, they have to do things better. I've recently had a conversation with some delegates from Sweden that um, were very focused on mining rates in their, in, in their northern perimeter and their engagement with the Sami. And it's something that uh, you know will be evolving around the world and that advocacy 
Canada has a role to play in, in getting its own house in order, but our, our, our advocacy in and around the world is certainly growing, and particularly with the new administration to the south of us, um, it's something that will, will be more of a focal point in Canada and, and, and the US in particular. Well, thank you for that. And I know that you know the role of the private sector is so crucial, right? And, and it is a journey that we all have to go on. So um, just a, a bit of a digression a bit. But I joined you know, the board of Hydro One 2018 very much with the focus on, we had just closed a large transaction, 129 First Nations had bought into Hydro One because it had gone public. And there was very much a recognition that there is a history in this company. It was the former Ontario Hydro. It, it uh, communities had, several communities had uh, very, you know, deep grievances with uh, past historic flooding that had happened within the communities. And so, you know, we went on our journey and, you know, with the board, uh, you know, trying to understand how are we going to create meaningful participation? What would be, what will be Hydro One's economic reconciliation, if you will? Um, and I have to say, it's not an easy discussion, uh, very difficult one on, you know, several discussions trying to bring people around to understanding, uh, you know, what we're really untapping if you are bold, right? If, yeah. And I think you've said that before, Mark, but lastly, <laughs> you know, if you're bold, right? How are we gonna be bold, right? And we just, you know, we just, Hydro One is just, uh, itself made some bold decisions, right? So we're coming around looking at our five-year plan seeing that there's five major transmission lines in Southwest and looking to be bold as well. And I think we will realize, you know, like on the one hand we can say, um, we know what our next five-year plan is gonna be like. Uh, and that on, in and of itself is a success to have that certainty. So we are definitely trying to encourage, but I know that uh, it's a challenge uh, when you're asking companies to understand, you know, it, the, the topic I think still comes up of why me? Why do I have to do it, right? I think with Hydro One, we know that the history is so fraught with challenges, right? Um, it seems to make sense, but how, how do we get these other companies to be bold, Mark? Well, this is interesting. Companies, progressive companies, and this is an audience that is the friendly audience, right? The mm -hmm. audience you need to have this conversation with is not this one, um, <laughs> but, that said, uh, critical minerals, there's a critical minerals council right now, a lot of industry trying to get towards what they need to do to move their business forward. And I, I sat in there and when I sit in these on Zoom, I turn the camera off because I don't want them to know there's an indigenous person in the room and I want to hear what they're saying. And the number one topic is indigenous inclusion. They know that they have to get to this place because not, not because it's the right thing to do, although it is, it's because there's no way to get their business off the ground without doing it. We've come to a place as a society where we understand the inclusion is not just a do the right thing, it's do the only thing. It's the only way we're gonna succeed in, in capturing the $136 trillion, is it, that's flowing around the world right now that's being mobilized towards clean energy solutions. We are a powerhouse in terms of resources, not just in terms of mineral extraction, but also in terms of power generation. And we have a history that you said is fraught and generally indigenous people are not happy in the situation we find ourselves. I'm from a community with 96% unemployment. It's just not where we want to be. So the pieces are coming together. You're starting to see this zeitgeist shift in the Canadian public and the Canadian commercial sector that this is something we need to do. 
And back to what you said, Minister, other company, countries are starting to look towards us. We have all the pieces. We have rule of law. We have constitutional structure that recognizes everyone's rights. We have civil society. We have the capital markets. We have the resources markets. And in many cases, indigenous people who are willing to participate. We should be at the front of the pack in the world to do this. All right, so I wanna ask you, I mean, you raised something where um, it's, a, it's, I think, a, a, a bit of an irony still or a bit of a challenge that I just wanna raise. But on the topic of, you know, if, if consent, right? And, and obtaining consent, if you have our consent. On the other hand, I think just speaking on, on the other side of the coin, maybe companies may be asking, um, you know, what does consent mean, right? What does that mean? And, and you know, I think we talk about it be, being creating certainty, but I think you still have communities that may be uncertain or, or industry that may be feeling uncertain about what will that mean? Are we opening up a Pandora's box? So the question is, <laughs> is it a Pandora's box? Um, <laughs> What's interesting is I get this at times when I'll meet some industry and they'll come out and say, well, why can't you indigenous people get some consent? You don't agree on things. So how can we do any business? How could you do anything like a structure like that? And I, my response is usually like, oh, like the Canadian government, like Quebec agrees with Alberta on everything. Right. Sure, sure. <laughs> but your family, when's the last time you sat down at a family meal and agreed on consent on anything, right? It's life. And so that process has to be worked through community by community, nation to company, uh, nation to government. It's just the way it is. There's no such thing as blanket consent on anything. If the project, because we're talking about economic reconciliation, is in the interest of the indigenous community's values and where it wants to go or it sees itself environmentally, economically, and socially, and the company, then they have to come to some agreement themselves. And, but companies are doing it. You've heard a lot of examples here at this conference, but you'll see companies now making the effort and understanding where they have to go. And it's a practical discussion. It's not about corporate social responsibility like it was in the 1980s where we just have to get them to sign off on something. It's about a core agreement about shared values, the shared ethos of what is trying to be done in that example. And walking down that path together. And you walk right? it down and together, yeah. no, not with us, not, not for us without yeah. us. And it is happening. And you heard some great examples already all through today about these incredible successes that are happening. And those have happened because people have been walking together, trying to decide what's mutually beneficial. And in the Canadian economy, the way they're going, the globalization of things, that discussion has to speed up. And often in those, those arguments that you hear, there is some legitimate concern for uncertainty. Often as well, it's just it's coming from an area of, uh, of folks that don't close minds and don't want to don't want to make the effort to go out and Difficulty actually do the job that they're supposed to, supposed to do well. so you have, first you have to figure what is that person actually asking me and is that really the question they want to pose me <laughs> or pose to whoever they they want it and you know the it's frustrating at times to hear but the reality is um they get they either get on board or the world will pass them by uh, in terms of you know big business private enterprise um consulting or they won't get the project that they want yeah. um, taking no for an answer is important but the process of actually figuring out whether there's a yes or a no is much more complex than doing a desktop operation and, and going into communities. You can't expect unanimity. I mean, I, I get... Like the cabinet. I'm sure there's unanimity every oh, yeah. time the cabinet meets, right? <laughs> One person's size, done. <laughs> uh, the, you know, I get elect, 
I'm, I'm in the member of parliament for downtown Montreal. Um, I would say on a given day, 20% of the population wants to separate from Canada, right? But that's the reality. And there's yeah. nuance within community. Um, there's nuance everywhere. And yeah. You can't just think that you've gone into the community, talked to one person, um, whether the chief or not, and suddenly everyone thinks the same way. It's just that's not reality. You know, that's, that's comic book reality. It just mm -hmm. doesn't happen. All right. I so, want to touch into there again. Thing. Yeah. And companies that are coming forward from an indigenous perspective in a community, if the community is talking to a proponent and they're not willing to go there, there will be another proponent. There will be somebody else. So don't rush into things. I'm talking to the wrong people here. I'm talking to indigenous <laughs> people in this. But there will be someone else, especially on the resources. Uh, I, um, Margaret, I think you said, you know, they, they were here, they'll be here a thousand years later. Was it you said that, Tom? I can't remember which you said it, but it was a great point. Leave they were here now. for a thousand years, they'll be here <laughs> a thousand years later. So you come back in a thousand years and we'll talk. You, you just wait. Somebody else will be more willing to talk. No, I think those are good points and, and companies don't want to miss out, right? And if they lose, they want to make sure that next time they don't lose, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is it going to take? Better to have the project than not have it at all, right? And so... And then I think, again, this point of just working, working close together will create great outcomes, things we didn't expect, right? Success stories. And, and you know, maybe it does also, I'm, I'm sure it does, but, you know, comes back to understanding that we have individuals who have, who have you know, worked their way through projects and, and are creating great outcomes for themselves, careers that they can look to. All right, so let me switch. Let me switch gears a bit. I know that uh, Minister Miller, you're originally a lawyer, so you won't mind me switching over to something on policy and starting to get back to something that you had mentioned in your opening remarks. But just getting back to this topic of land, right? I think of often think of our unique land tenure as First Nations, as Indigenous people in this country, and very much. Um, you know, troubled with it, tasked with it, trying to understand how can we elevate the, the value of our lands, of our indigenous lands, if we understand that our, our challenges around land tenure still very much lie in, you know, limited transferability. And, you know, that gets over to difficulties around financing and, and trying to do commercial transactions. And, you know, I sort of think this is very much what my career has been completely centered around and looking for those ways, positively looking for tools, right? And thinking of, uh, you know, being happy that the government had put forward legislation like the First Nations Land Management Act. But we sort of, you know, quite often look back to it. That was 1999, right? We had some original signatories, companies or communities that now you sort of look at them and you say, well, uh, thinking of um, Scugog, Scugog Island, right? One of the original signatories. You could literally follow along and see that they've gone in leaps and bounds and become more and more successful and sustainable and are now investing in companies and able to make their own decisions. And, you know, but so like, what are we going to do with this? How do we create more communities to go through modern legislation, how do we support them and understand sort of like what, it, what are the fear factors? And right now I understand, you know, we have a third of our First Nations at some level are working their way through the First Nations Land Management Act, but it, it's been since 1999. What are we gonna do? <laughs> see the, see the, yeah. clock, the clock ticking at 24 minutes. <laughs> uh, I think the first, realization in my mind is that everything has to be consent-based 
And we've tried too long to force square pegs into a round hole, and that's probably a polite way to put it. Um, and it doesn't work with devastating effects. Um, it applies in this particular context equally so, because our assumption is, does every, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves, does every community have to go um, through the set of instruments that however innovatively they've been designed are imperfect fits for, for communities? Um, whether that's the way of holding land, which has been imposed, uh, whether it's um, whether it's fee simple or otherwise, and sure, it's unlocked uh, a lot of economic benefits, but it goes to the questioning of the Western model of how you develop. And there's no question that the, the First Nations Land Management Act has been innovative and groundbreaking for a good chunk of communities. Um, there's more work to do, there's amendments to be made, and there's been some good work actually done to fix some of the holes that exist under that. Uh, which will bring a number of communities that want to out and away from that level of fear that you were talking about into a system that will allow them really done to leverage um, all their assets, expertise and genius that they have within the communities. And they're just waiting for um, the work that they've done to get through the House of Commons and, 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 and move. So that, that, works, that work is moving. Uh, the question is, um, we shouldn't be here to force any particular community to do uh, and, t and adopt any model when you look at, when you look at uh, some of the court cases, whether it's uh, Chilcotin or um, even the, even even uh, its forefathers, uh, it's left some incomplete questions as to sovereignty, the way of holding lands, the discussions in around unceded land, how land tenure is expressed in a particular uh, in a particular territory. These are big question marks that are um, both economic and philosophical in nature that are unresolved even in the country and even in the provinces where perhaps we have the best partnerships with indigenous rights which is which is british columbia um there's a lot of questioning to be had about a fundamental principle of the united nations declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples which is inherent rights and the reality is, is for any modern treaty any self-government agreement we still have to go through the house of commons so the, for perhaps effective jurisdiction and making you know, whatever we agree um, consensually stick as part of the undertaking of the government of Canada, regardless of the government. But if you truly believe, believe in self-determination, you don't need the House of Commons. Um, and that's work that's now uh, going through another round of the Supreme Court with Quebec's contestation on, on C-92. And I think will be a fundamental question that we'll have to resolve as a country and not hopefully not catch up with um, Supreme Court judgments that are as groundbreaking as they are, that are foundational to this, this discussion, but also how we move forward on on how we leverage particular assets and how the government itself gets more flexible. So um, it's always a process, <laughs> but it's a process that, that we have to keep open minds about because um, forcing people into a certain category just doesn't work um, and it yields negative, uh, negative economic results. Okay, well, I, I, I think that's very helpful, right? So it's just trying to think through um, how do we uh, ensure that we're building those trusted relationships with the communities and let e let communities move at their own pace, right? Um, I want to just raise something on this and the whole land management, and it has been a super success for some communities to be able to access and just unlock their creativity, unlock their assets. But the next, that was done in the 1990s. You come forward to now where we've got the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People in British Columbia, where I'm from, unceded territory. Does the tradition stop our traditional territory, our, sorry, our territory stop at the bounds of the, of the reserve or what? What jurisdiction is there for an indigenous community nation on unceded territory? Land Management Act will not address that. So we're almost in another stage. We've moved 
to a new ecosystem in some ways, which is now a question that has to be grappled with. And that will be something that will need to be worked out together. All right, well, I'll still make a pitch for some of my clients who <laughs> don't want to get left behind, you know, and are still trying to, to understand, like, you know, when you have business, business coming to the table looking for commercial leasing and, and sort of the, time, the timing that it takes to move through the land designation process, I think is admittedly challenging. It's way too slow. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> the, uh, but, I, but I will say, I mean, I'm pleased to see, right, that there's, there's a recognition that we can create models to, we can create sort of a, a standard model on land designations that, that this could hopefully. Yeah, and I, I don't wanna be flip about it being too slow, because it is, but the impacts of it being too slow, even if you have the best instruments and the communities are moving along, um, on all the tools that are available to them now without that more profound philosophical discussion is how do we deal with land tenure going forward to a wide swath of the country. Um, it has impacts on how you, how you obtain financing. You're forcing similar situated communities that may, you know, a community may get financing on three, four percent um, terms for their debt, forced to go in the 10, 11 percent debt with um, a type of um, lender that you really don't want to have around your kitchen table. Mezzanine lenders, secondary <laughs> All right. Well, let's hope that, uh, I mean, I know that Canada Infrastructure Bank has definitely helped bridging the gap and, and moving those uh, loans along uh, quicker. Uh, so listen, I know we didn't get a lot of chance to ask questions in the earlier sessions. And I know we're going to, maybe what I want to do is, I do have a couple more questions, but I do want to leave, open it up to the floor if we have some questions uh, from the audience uh, for Minister Miller. 